Yes, we are in the book of Malachi, or better known as Malachi, the Italian prophet. Thank you. Andrew, thanks for not taking my joke. I appreciate that. He did that first service. I had that all geared up, and then he did it. But Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2. The word of the Lord says this. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Let's pray. Lord God, today you both have um, conviction and yet blessing that you want to confer upon us and sink deep into our hearts this morning. Help us by your spirit to have hearts and minds open to receive the food of your word through the prophet Malachi. And yet may it just lead us to be a people who love you and fear you and follow you more this day than all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you remember the book of Joshua, in Joshua 2, he is preparing the people of Israel to go in and conquer the city of Jericho. And what he did is he, is he sent two spies and he said, hey, go, go and view it. And as the spies went, they came to the house of a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And when the king of Jericho heard about this, he sent the men to her and asked about the spies. And, and instead of giving them up, she said, ah, oh, yeah, they came here, but then they left. Like, I think they went this way. Go chase after them. Then she went up to the roof where she hid the spies, and she said this. She said this to the spies in Joshua 2.9. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. In 12 and 13, now then, please swear to me, by the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our, and deliver our lives from death. Rahab saw and understood the power and greatness of the Almighty God in the face of the fact that her city was about to be destroyed. But instead of panicking, instead of losing hope, she chose to fear God. So she hid the spies. She committed treason against the king of Jericho. She saved her family. And she was blessed by God. If you know your Bible, she was blessed by God to be the mother of Boaz, who then is in the line of the lineage of Christ. She was and is an example of someone who genuinely feared and followed the Lord. But then there's the people of Judah and Malachi. Now, we don't know the exact date of the writing of Malachi, but most scholars believe that he was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, which means that this book was probably written uh, and his prophecy was brought sometime in the mid-5th century B.C. And this is supported by the fact that Malachi covers a range of topics, 
right, that are, that are also talked about in Nehemiah and Ezra. And this includes some of the following. The corruption of the priests, intermarriage with foreign nations, abusing the disadvantaged, and then he talks about their failure to pay the tithe. And from these topics, we also begin to see that this period in the history of God's people was not a happy time. As the commentator Ian Duguid wrote, it was an age of widespread religious disillusionment and contentment. But why? Why are God's people so disillusioned? Like, why are they so discontent? Well, if we go back two books to the book of Haggai, in that book, the people had fallen short of what God wanted them to do. They were supposed to rebuild the temple, and they weren't doing it. But this amazing thing happened. Like, like God sends the prophet Haggai, Haggai proclaims the word of God, and then they get to work. And not only do they get to work, but they're actually excited about it. Like, they're super stoked about, like, yes, God, we're going to go, we're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to do it. Because God didn't just tell them to rebuild the temple, but he gave them a promise. He said this in Haggai 2, 6 through 9. He said, fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so the people of God are sitting there thinking, oh man, like this is going to be awesome, right? Prosperity is going to come. The nations are going to come. We're going to rebuild this temple. And like God's glory is going to come. And this thing is going to be awesome. But then God's temple is rebuilt and finished in roughly 516 B.C. And then nothing. Instead, their land was an economic and political afterthought. They're still technically under the rule of the Persians. They're continually oppressed by their neighbors. And there was no longer a promised Davidic king. Needless to say, these people were discouraged and frustrated. And now to make this a little bit more real of you, think about our day. Think about Israel right now. You can't read any news or watch any news and not think about it. The nation of Israel finally became once again a nation state roughly 65 years ago, right? And again, because Israel, again, there are Jewish people in Israel who are still thinking that these Old Testament promises are going to be fulfilled, right? That there is going to be a literal temple built in God's glory is once again going to fulfill it. So they're still awaiting that promise. And yet, unfortunately, right now, they are in a fight for their existence. They are experiencing fear and, sad and sadness and frustration and disillusionment, probably on a level that most of us have never felt. And these are similar feelings shared by the Jews in Malachi's time. <coughs> they felt like they had done their part, right? They rebuilt the temple. We did it, God. 
and yet they felt like God didn't see his. They were believing and living as if God had failed. Now, I know that we are not in the same situation. But do you ever feel like that? Are you struggling or have you struggled to believe that God is for you? That he is working, that he is moving even when you can't see it. If that's you, I want you to know that it's okay. It is okay to struggle with those feelings. God does not condemn us because we feel a certain way, right? He doesn't condemn us for those struggles and and inner feelings that we have. And God didn't send Malachi, whose name, by the way, means my messenger. He didn't send him to his people because they were struggling with those feelings. He sent Malachi to prophesy against them because they had lost their fear and awe of God. And instead, they chose to live a lifestyle of half-hearted worship as they they disobeyed the clear commands of God. Where Rahab looked around her and chose to fear the Lord, God's people in Malachi's time chose to trust themselves and live their own way. And so this morning, we're going to look at what God has to say through his messenger and what he has to say to a disgruntled, and disobedient people. And he has four things. He's going to bring to them the problem, right? And and that it's his people, they have a half-hearted faith. And his response to them is that his judgment is coming. But then he doesn't leave them there. He gives them a promise. He's saying, but but I still still love you, and I'm working for your good. And then he gives them a call to fear the Lord and follow his commands. And all along the way, my hope, again, any time we do these Old Testament books, the hope is that we can take the Old Testament and bring it alive and make it applicable to right where we are at today. Believing that God wants to move us from a place of doubt and half-heartedness in our faith to a place where we stand in awe of our triune God and we give him the worship that he rightly deserves. But in order to do that, I need to start with the bad news. And the bad news is this, our first point for this morning, that God's people have a half-hearted faith. Malachi 3, 13 through 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. So much of Malachi is set up in this format, where God, through the prophet, says something against his people. His people question him, right? And yet God responds, saying, let me tell you what you did wrong. And in these verses, the the prophet is calling God's people out for basically, for being honest, they're kind of talking smack about God. Right? And their response is, what are you talking about? We didn't say nothing. We ain't talking smack. Maybe this has happened to you, right? Somebody comes up to you, probably a spouse, and says, hey, you're mean. You're being mean. And you're like, no, I'm not. What do I even do? Right? And your hope is, honestly, they can't tell you. 
right? When you say something like that, you're hoping, like, ah, I hope they don't remember what I just did, right? My wife has a memory like a steel trap. She remembers everything. I remember nothing. So guess who always loses? I do. Same thing with God. God never forgets. And he tells them exactly what they did. You said that there is no purpose in following God or keeping his commands because all you see is, ev- is evil people prospering and you're saying God's not doing anything about it. And they're not the first ones to do this. In fact, the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk did this as well. Habakkuk 1.4, he said, So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Again, Habakkuk is really angry and he's saying, God, the wicked seem to prosper. They, it seems like they are all around us and it seems like your law is paralyzed because nothing's happening. But here's the difference. Even though Habakkuk, even though he was angry, even though he questioned God, he still chose to trust God. Right here, Habakkuk 2.1, he says, after all of his complaints, he says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk is saying, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for you to respond. I'm still going to trust you, God. And unfortunately, this wasn't the response of God's people in Malachi's day. Instead of trusting God as they dealt with their disappointment and hard circumstances, they chose what, they chose what can only be characterized as a half-hearted faith. On the one hand, if you read the book, if you, read, if you had a chance to work through these chapters this week, you realize that they're, they're sort of like kind of loosely following his commands. Like if you squint your eyes enough, like, you know how, like, you can, if you, I don't know if you guys have ever done painting before, but I have. I've tried to, like, paint pictures, and then if you, like, kind of squint, because you do a really bad job, you kind of squint and look at it, it kind of looks good, right? It kind of looks like the thing that you were trying to make, but if you actually really look at it, it's not, right? That's happened to me a ton of times, because I'm not a good artist. And that's kind of the people of Israel. If you kind of squint your eyes, you can be like, maybe, maybe they're kind of following his commands. And yet on the other, they really are choosing to live their own way because they don't think that God is going to do anything. And so God, in his goodness, he brings charges against them. He says this in Malachi 1.8. He says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So if you remember what what God's law says to the priests, you know that sacrifices were to be made and the sacrifices, those animals brought, were to be unblemished animals, right? Meaning that they can't be blind, they can't be lame, they can't be sick. But the priests didn't care. And not only did they not care, they actually said at one point, like, ugh, that's a lot. Like, that's like hard work. I don't really want to do that. They didn't think God's holiness was worth the trouble of doing what his law required. They were half-hearted and faithless in their worship. 
and it's really easy to read that in Malachi 1.8 to realize that he's talking to the priests and to be like, eh, that doesn't apply to me. And yet Peter doesn't give us that option. That's why he says in 1 Peter 2.9 that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that's important, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because of Christ, all of us as God's children are given the status of priest. We are all his priests because we are the royal priesthood, the people of God. Which means that Malachi 1 applies to us. So my question for us this morning, if we're talking about half-hearted worship, how is our worship of God? How are we coming into worship? Are we coming in with hearts that are ready to give him honor and praise? Right? The praise that is due his name. Do we come here with reverence or awe? Or do we come here as this is, as basically this is just another thing on the to-do list? Right? You wake up on a Sunday and you're like, oh yeah, I got, yeah, I got, gotta go do grocery shopping. We gotta go maybe to this birthday party. Oh yeah, sure, we gotta go to church too. Is it just another thing? And I brought this up in the previous service, so I'll bring it up now, even though it wasn't originally planned, is, I don't know if you guys are on X or Twitter, I don't know if you follow the controversies that happened, but uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor John Piper, he got lambasted uh, on Twitter because he basically was trying to bring up that we, I think that we've lost our reverence when it comes to worship. And his example was bringing coffee into service, Right? And, and I know some of you are like, amen, and others of you are like, oh, Charlton Heston, you got to pry it from my cold, dead hands, as Andrew drinks a cup of coffee back there, right? I'm with him. I love my coffee. But I think the heart of it is correct. He's really asking the question, like, how do we come in here, right, as God's people? Like, this is a holy gathering of God's people. Like, do we come ready to worship God? to encourage one another, to, to live out this foretaste of the heavenly kingdom that will be in eternity? Or do we just come in here flippantly, unprepared, believing that this is just another thing? Or what about your personal devotion? Right? Do, you, do you come to God's word? Do you come to God in prayer ready ready to experience fellowship and communion with the triune God? Or do you just come, just distracted, kind of give him a few, a few pithy moments and call it good? But then there's another charge. God says this through Malachi in 2, 10 through 11 and 14. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Then in verse 14 he says, But you say, why does he not? Why does he not accept us? Why does he not accept our offering? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, 
So she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So the bottom line here is that the people of Judah are being faithless. They are spitting on the covenant of God by being faithless in their relationships. In particular, some of the men are marrying women from other foreign nations who worship other gods. That's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, other men are basically divorcing their first wives, the wives of their youth, as if it's no big deal. As one commentator points out, they were either abandoning or divorcing their wives for another romantic relationship, or more likely, they were leaving to marry someone from another nation so that they could make a treaty and gain political advantage. Because again, remember, as I said at the beginning, they are basically a political afterthought in this time. So really, then marrying someone from a foreign nation was, like a, was basically like a power grab right, to make a treaty. And yet in Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4, God commands his people. He says, don't marry women from other nations who serve other gods. Or in his creation mandate from Genesis 2, 24, God tells his people that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cling to his wife. And when we look to the New Testament, we see that these commands are not only reinforced, but they are given even more weight. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? The bottom line is that believers have no business either being in a relationship or marrying somebody who is not also a follower of Jesus Christ. They have no business. However, I will say this. If you are here this morning and you just heard me say that and you are someone who is currently married to somebody that does not follow Jesus Christ, I don't want you to hear me saying that then you should go divorce that person because that is also not God's command in your life. right? Because Paul goes on to say one chapter later in 2 Corinthians 7 that you are to remain faithful. If you are married to an unbelieving spouse, you are to remain faithful to them because that honors God, because marriage is a serious thing in God's eyes. But then comes the heavyweight verses, the verses that make us all squirm, and I only picked out two. In Ephesians 5, verses 24 and 25, it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should, should submit. I have trouble with that word submit. I don't know why. Sorry. They should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, the New Testament call is not just, hey, don't leave your spouse. If you just don't leave your spouse, you're good. I mean, that's a good thing. Please don't leave your spouse. That's good. But it's so much bigger than that. Faithfulness to God is about wives and husbands living with each other and serving one another in such a way that it reflects the relationship of Christ to his bride, the church. So how are we doing at that? How are we doing at loving and serving our spouses? Husbands, how are you doing at being Christ your wives and that's weighty just even to think about that that's a lot right but how are you doing at being christ to your wives 
husband, how are you doing, wives, at submitting to and respecting your husbands and being the helper that God has called you to be? These are weighty questions, important questions, biblical questions. And yet if you're here and you're not married, I want to add this. How are you doing at loving and serving and being faithful to your physical and spiritual family, which is a command of all believers? Again, these are important and weighty commands and questions that, frankly, God's people in Malachi didn't take seriously at all. And because they didn't, there were consequences. Because of their half-hearted faith, their half-hearted response to God and following his commands and his laws, there were consequences. And the consequence is that judgment is coming. It's the second point this morning. Malachi 3.5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I don't know about you, but one thing that very much bothers me is whenever I come to judgment passages, I can so easily just kind of shrug my shoulders and be like, meh, okay, no big deal. Because I wrongly live at times like as if I'm saved, which I believe is true, but then I kind of live like I'm saved and it doesn't matter how I live. I can come to worship on Sunday. I can preach a good sermon, I hope. Uh, I can lead worship. I can pray with people. I can talk spiritual talk. And yet I can go home and have it not affect the way that I live. Or in my own home, I can be cold to my wife. I can at times be short with my kids and I can give less than my best to the Lord and not be convicted about it. And yet somehow still think, oh yeah, me and God, we're good. No big deal. The truth is that Malachi paints a different picture. To the half-hearted and faithless priests, he says in Malachi 2.3, he says, behold, I will rebuke your offering or your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. And then in Malachi 2.12 and 16, he says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. God is clearly not saying, it's all good. Doesn't matter how you live. You do you. That's what matters. He's not saying that. Instead, he is letting his people know that if we live a life where we are half-hearted and faithless to God, then judgment is coming. And now I don't want to belabor this point. I really don't. But I know, I know this. It's really easy for us as a Reformed church, and in particular as just evangelicals. It's really for us to say this. But Pastor Ryan, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, not by works. And I say yes and amen. That is absolutely true. 
right? And I want you to believe that. I want you to believe that deep down to your bones. That is absolutely true. But in quoting Ephesians 2, 8, 9, because that's basically what you're doing. You're doing a paraphrased version of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We end up thinking about the how of our salvation, but we miss out on the what we've been saved for, which comes in the next verse, which we don't very often quote. And yet God says this through Paul in Ephesians 2.10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the overflow or the response of faith should, should be to do the good that God has for us. To live in a way that honors God. But if we don't, if we live like God's people in Malachi and are faithless, then maybe, maybe we don't have a genuine faith. As James says, and I, 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 I quote this verse that's all too often quoted with fear and trembling, as James says, faith without works is dead. There's a reason why Luther took the book of James and put it in the back of his Bible, right? Because it's hard. Faith without works is dead. Which means that we need to be ready because judgment is coming. So that's the bad news, right? I always, I always do the bad news first then to give you the the good news. And the good news is that God in his goodness, despite all the sin-exposing judgment that he's bringing through Malachi, that he still has a message of promise and hope for his people. Right? And that message is that God still loves his people and that he is working for their good. It says in Malachi 1, 2, and 3, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So even though I didn't start the sermon here, this is where the book of Malachi starts. With God's declaration of his love for his people. I bet you wish I started there, but I didn't. Right? He starts out with his declaration of love for his people. And of course, based on their circumstances, they're like, how have you loved us, God? Right? What are you talking about? Like, our enemies surround us. We're not prospering as a nation. And this grand vision that you talked about in Haggai is definitely not happening. And yet he tells them, I I love you because I chose you. And you know that I chose you because if you look to your, to your heritage, to your ancestry, you know that I chose Jacob. Right? I chose Jacob to be my people, and you are his descendant. And you know that I didn't choose Esau. Meaning that his love for his people, his continual work among them, is not dependent upon their faithfulness, but is dependent upon his choosing to be their God, and him choosing them to be his people. And because of the sovereign love that God has for his people, he lets them know that, look, 
I know it's hard. I know you feel like garbage. I know that this thing isn't going the way that you thought it would go right now, but I want you to know that I haven't left you and that I'm going to do a work among you that is going to be for your everlasting good. He says this in Malachi 3, 1 through 4. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant with whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So right in the midst of their fear and their frustration, their faithlessness, God says, look, look at it. I'm going to send my messenger and he is going to prepare the way before I come. Now, on the one hand, God is calling them ultimately in the kind of the immediate context to heed the words of Malachi, because Malachi's name means my messenger, right? So that's the immediate context. But he is also pointing them to something in the future, this grand thing that's going to happen that a couple of weeks from now, like we're going to hear about, right? When John the Baptist comes. And once he comes, then the Lord will suddenly come into his temple. The temple, which is currently empty and lifeless in Malachi's day, will once again have life as that prophecy of Haggai comes to life and the future glory of the temple is glorious. But the temple that God is talking about is not a building. He's not pointing to that. He's not still talking about this future glory of the temple that the Jews today are looking for. He's talking about the temple of his people. And the Lord that comes is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who took on flesh, the one who lived the perfect life that we couldn't, who was and is the only faithful high priest who willingly died on the cross to bear our sin and our shame so that we could be called sons and daughters of the living God. He is the one who the prophet is pointing to just as he is the one that all of Scripture is pointing to. But I have to say this. Jesus is coming isn't just some kumbaya moment, right? He's not just coming and being like, oh, I came, I died on the cross, everything's great, everybody's perfect, everyone's saved. That's not exactly what it is, right? Because again, as I said, judgment is real. And if you read the Gospels, you realize, even in the words of Jesus, he still says, judgment is real and it is coming. But 
And even though God loves us as his chosen children, for those of us who are his, it doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. But according to Malachi, those whom he loves, it says he will refine and purify like gold and silver. And now I don't have enough time to like talk about, let's talk about the whole process of refining gold and silver. I don't have time to talk about that. Right? That could be a whole thing in and of itself. But here's what it does mean. It means that God is going to turn up the heat in your life. And he does that for a purpose. He does that to root out the impurities of sin, of selfishness, of faithlessness, of pride, of anger, and lust. That's why he does that. And he will do this by the power of his spirit so that we will become faithful children that please our triune God. And so as you think about where, where each of you are in your life, as you think about each of the things that you're going through, again, life might be hard for you right now. You might be in the serious throes of marriage struggles. Right? You might be in the serious throes of health struggles or financial struggles. I don't know what those things are. I really don't. But I want to say this. And I want to say this to you with as much honesty and I, and I, I believe self-application as I can. Because what I'm about to say, I need as much, if not more, than everybody else in this room. Christian life, it's supposed to be hard. I don't like saying that. I don't like hard. I, I pointed to my wife in the first service, and I was like, my wife knows, and she kind of shook her head, yep. I don't like hard. I really don't. But the Christian life is supposed to be hard. Not joyless, not lifeless, not meaningless. In fact, it is wholly meaningful, to quote Piper. But it's hard. Look with me at the following verses. Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord disciplines us. That's hard, right? Nobody likes discipline. I don't like it. Maybe there's some weird sadistic person out here that loves it. I don't like it. But yet the Lord does it because he loves us. It is necessary. John 16:33, I have said these things to you that that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We are going to have tribulation. We're going to have trials. We're going to have struggles. We are going to have hard. But yet the good news is that even in the hard, Jesus has overcome that. Right? He has overcome the world. Then in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In the Christian life, God is testing us. He is refining us. He is purifying 
us through the hard of this life so that we will become his faithful children made in the image of Christ and will receive the eternal crown of glory which God has promised to us. So we must be people who live in light of this promise. Knowing that God loves us, that he sent Christ to the cross on our behalf, and that he is ultimately, ultimately working for our good. Even as we walk through a life filled with trials, he is working for our good. And he is working to prepare us for that day, that glorious day when we will see him face to face and we will receive everlasting life. And so then, if that is the great hope, if that is the great promise, then the last thing is how are we called to respond? That's our last point. We are called to fear the Lord and follow his commands. Malachi 4, 1 and 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now I bring up verse 1 just as a reminder. Once again, right? Malachi doesn't, he actually never gets too far from this point because he wants them to understand, like, again, judgment is real and it is coming. Like All the evil, the arrogance, the sin, the half-hearted worship will be dealt with. And that's meant to be both conviction, but then also, too, it's meant to also be hope for them, right? Because that includes all of the surrounding nations that are oppressing them as well. But but for those whom God loves, those whom he chose, those for whom Christ died and who are refined by God in the furnace of life. The call, the call from God is to fear him, to stand in awe of him and live a life of reverence and full-hearted worship and obedience. And we do that. We do that knowing that a reward awaits us, right? That there is healing and freedom from sin and the crown of everlasting life. And the question for each of us to wrestle with this morning is this. Is whose are we, right? Who do we belong to? And who are we going to serve? Will you be like Rahab, who despite all the impending hardships of the fall of Jericho, chose to fear and follow the Lord? Or will you live a disillusioned and disgruntled life of half-hearted faithfulness like those in Judah, not realizing that what he has in store for you, if you fear and follow him, is eternal glory? And I have this quote, this famous quote, we've brought it up before here at La Crescent Free from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Weight of Glory. And he says, 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Don't be half-hearted, right? And again, as I'm saying that to you, I'm just as much saying that to myself. Don't be half-hearted. Come to Christ. Turn away from your sin Fear him and follow his ways, knowing that, yes, like life's going to be hard. We have to, be, we have to come to grips with that. Life is going to be hard. But all of it, all of it is eternal, eternally meaningful. Because God is preparing for us his own eternal holiday at the sea. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, some of my Favorite, favorite verses in all of Scripture. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so I want to end. I want to end with this. Right? If you take nothing else, take this. God's call for you again and every day from this day until you see him face to face, right? Fear him. Stand in awe of him. Follow his commands and receive eternal glory knowing that what you see today, right? Everything we see is passing away. But that glory remains forever. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, you have given us weighty things this morning through your word. Again, there is so much uh, sin-exposing truth in Malachi that need to be dealt with as we deal with our, our, our hearts, our, our faithlessness. Um, our half-heartedness towards you, and yet the reality of judgment. But at the same time, Lord, just thank you so much for the promise. The promise that you have chosen us, that you love us, that we are your children whom you are working in. And if we are yours, you will do a refining work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I know it's hard. I know I don't like it at times. But yet you are doing something in the hard that you are calling us in one sense to lean into. To lean into realizing, Lord, that what you are doing is that you are preparing us for an eternity with you. For this great holiday at the sea. This eternal glory that is beyond all comparison. So help us, Lord, to leave here today looking to that eternity, looking to that eternal glory, living for that in the midst of all that we are facing today, knowing that what we have coming is far greater than what we have today. And so may that just as it spurred on God's people in Haggai to build the temple, that future glory, may it spur us on to faithfulness today by your spirit so that you will be honored 
that the name of Christ will be lifted high, that the gospel will go forth, and by your grace and your spirit, the nations will be saved. And realizing that we can be just so excited for that day when all nations and all tongues and all people are worshiping you face to face in glory. So Lord, please help us to live in light of that glory to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.